Good morning. Let's just pray as we look at God's word together. Lord, we pray that you will speak as we look at your word. You will make it live to us today. We pray that you'll help us to apply it to our lives. You will challenge us where we need challenging. You will encourage us where we need encouraging. And we pray that as you only can, you'll wing the words to our hearts. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Well, a man was interviewed for the role of human resources director in a major organization. Does uh, Presta. This way? Okay. Radical love. That's what we're looking at this morning. Radical love. Uh, yeah, a man was uh, interviewed for human resources director of this major organization. And uh, the interview was going nowhere, really. Uh, it was a very traditional organization. They, uh, they felt that they needed to put somebody in that role, but they really didn't believe in it. Um, they were going to give the guy the role of director. That would be the name on the door, but he would have very little power unless the board uh, allowed him sway. And uh, the questions were designed really not to get the best out of the candidates. The questions were designed really to show the candidates who was boss and where actually the decisions were going to be made. Maybe you've been to an interview like that. Well, the organization might be required to have a human resources presence, but uh, any direction would require the approval of the board. And what happened next really turned the anticipated experience right on its head. In a sort of not to 90 seconds, it all took two very simple questions. The worst question came first, and it was asked by the organization's chief executive, and he took time to position himself and uh, to pose, and he didn't rush, and he just leaned back in his chair, and uh, he said, why should I give you the job? Well, there was a bit of a silence, and he felt the need to ask it again, only this time he had a little bit of embellishment to it, uh, and he said, why should I give you the job rather than give it to one of the other seven candidates? Well, the applicant, he couldn't help wondering what sort of recruitment process was in operation that resulted in the final panel having to interview eight shortlisted candidates. Clearly, this was an organization that needed to reinterpret what shortlisting meant. <laughs> it was crying out for the need of an assertive and a professional human resources director. Well, there's only one answer you can give to a question like that, isn't it? And it's the man simply leaned forward and said, because I'm the best. Of course, he had no idea whether he was the best, but he certainly knew that the panel didn't have any idea either. And for a few seconds, no one moved. No one spoke. 
there was sort of some nervous twitching and there was some nervous laughter and you could hear the, the cogs of the, the mind churning in the chief executive as he struggled to come up with a further response. And he looked to his colleagues for some help, but they just shrugged their shoulders. And then, as if touched by a bolt of lightning, the chief executive realized that all the activity that they had gone on before was of no value at all in determining how best to spot talent. His confidence and pomposity and arrogance dissolved and suddenly he thought, actually the answer might actually lie in this candidate who's sitting in front of me. He might have the answers. And so he asked one of the best interview questions of all time. He said, how will we know you are any good? You see, the applicant couldn't bluff an answer. He now needed to deliver a response that justified his position. He needed to confirm to them that there was a genuine and a credible reason why he, sh why he should be given the job. The passage that was read to us this morning, Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan in response to a question by a lawyer. Not a lawyer in the sense that we know today. He was an expert in the Mosaic law. And the question posed is probably one of the best of all time. It's a question that is repeatedly asked by every generation. What must I do to inherit eternal life? If only we could find the elixir of youth. If we could sell it by the bottle, we'd be millionaires overnight. We don't want to age. We don't want to live forever in a worn out body. We want the beauty and the strength and the vitality of youth to remain and then to live forever. But the wording of the question gives us an insight into the lawyer's heart and how he viewed the scriptures. He was making the assumption that man has to do something to obtain eternal life. And it's the same belief that's widely held today, isn't it? If we hold to some moral code, then we'll be good enough to gain entrance into God's heaven. I've heard many people say that. Yes, you have too. The problem is that people don't know how good they need to be or whether they've done enough to achieve salvation. If there is a way by which I could achieve eternal life, then surely I need to know whether I've done enough, whether I've passed the, passed the mark, or whether I need to do a lot more. As the CEO said, how do we know we are any good? It is the fund fundamental question of life. And Jesus responds by asking a question in return to the lawyer. He says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with the soul and with all your mind, and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. 
Yes, it's true. Love is the answer. It's the answer that Jesus himself gave to sum up all of the Ten Commandments. If we love God with all of our being, and if we love our neighbour as we do ourselves, then there wouldn't be any crime or murder or hate. There wouldn't be any racism or sexism or ageism. There wouldn't be any genocide. There wouldn't be any war. The problems of the world would be solved. Jesus affirms that the lawyer's answer is correct. The lawyer has given a textbook answer. Jesus says, do this and you will live. If you love God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your mind and all your strength, you love your neighbor as yourself, you will live. Mr. Lawyer, you need to put into practice what you preach. You know the theory... Now live it out. The problem is that the standard is too high. We can't reach it. No matter how good we are, we're never good enough. The only way that we can inherit eternal life is by having a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said, I am the way. The truth and the life, you can't come to God except through me. And it's through God's amazing grace and through his love that in Jesus he paid the price for our sin. He took the punishment for us. And we can know his forgiveness by trusting in his finished work. I wonder if you've got that assurance this morning. It's no good hoping. We need to know of certainty. We need to know for sure. The Apostle John wrote, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the, is, is the Christ is born of God. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. It's that assurance. We don't need to worry whether we've done enough. He has done it all. We just need to trust him and devote our lives to him. Well, the lawyer was an educated man, and he realized that no matter how hard he tried, he could never keep the law, nor would he have necessarily wanted to. There would always be people in his life that he couldn't love. So he tries to limit the law's command by placing some parameters on it. And he says to Jesus, so who is my neighbor? Well, the word neighbor in the language of that day, Greek and Hebrew, referred to somebody who you were fairly close with, somebody that you had an association with. So in this context it would have referred to a fellow Jew. And so Jesus relates this parable to correct the lawyer's false understanding. This is radical love. It's not just about caring for somebody in your own set, somebody from your own society. It steps into uncharted territory. 
to include Samaritans and Romans and other foreigners. And Jesus relates this parable to show that what the law couldn't do, grace and mercy can. Well, a man is traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho and he's set upon by robbers who beat him badly and they strip him of everything he has, including his clothes. He was left half dead. And we traveled the road fairly recently. You can see it's a very arid area. It's a treacherously winding road, favorite hideout of robbers and thieves. Even today, it's a desolate area. The road runs 17 miles from Jerusalem down to Jericho. It goes down to the lowest part of the earth, 3,000 feet to Jericho. It's the, Jericho is the lowest inhabited city on earth and the oldest continually inhabited city. It's 1,350 feet below sea level, just seven miles north of the Dead Sea. And still today, there is an inn there called the Good Samaritan Inn. Uh, Archaeology has shown us that actually the, uh, the findings there date from Jesus' time. So this is a road that was well known. It was a major thoroughfare for traders and for pilgrims and for soldiers. And because of the isolation... People on this road were easy targets for bandits and robbers. There were ample hiding places for them to go to. So when Jesus said that a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, his listeners knew exactly what the road was like. They knew the dangers that this journey posed. A person who was robbed and beaten and left half dead on this road was in a very vulnerable position. There was no food, there was no water to find, no shelter from the elements. The victim would be utterly exposed and desperate for help. And first of all, a priest comes by. Well, if there was anyone who knew God's law of love, then it would have been the priest. The nature of his position was that he should have been the first person to give compassion with a desire to help others. Unfortunately, love for him was just a word, not an action. And the man was half dead, and the priest wouldn't, known, wouldn't have known whether he was dead or alive unless he touched him. And if he touched him, and he was dead, of course he would have been ceremonially unclean. He would have been defiled. So he didn't help. He crossed the road and went to the other side. And the next person who came by is a Levite. Levites were key people in the temple. They uh, were part of the worship team, if you like. They were um, on the welcome team or on the resource team. And it would be expected that a Levite would have a servant heart. Again, we read that he does exactly what the priest did and he passes by without showing any compassion. The third person to come by is the Samaritan, the one least likely to have shown compassion for the man because Samaritans 
were considered to be low life by the Jews. They'd intermarried with non-Jews. They didn't keep all of the law. And the Jews would have nothing to do with the Samaritans. In fact, the Samaritans were known to rob travellers and pilgrims on this road as they went up to Jerusalem. The listeners would not only have expected a Samaritan to be unsympathetic to the plight of the victim, they would have expected the Samaritan to be the perpetrator. This good Samaritan, he didn't consider the man's race or religion. He only saw a person in dire need of assistance. And that's what he offered above and beyond what was required. He bandages the man's wounds and uh, he puts him carefully on his own donkey and takes him to the inn for a time of healing. He pays the innkeeper sufficiently to allow him to stay there for some while. And because the good man was a Samaritan, Jesus is drawing a strong contrast between those who knew the law and those who actually followed the law in their lifestyle and in their conduct. You see, it's one thing to say that we love. It's another thing to put that love into action. And like most of Jesus' teaching, the impact of this story was radical and profound as he told it. And still today, if we take Jesus at his word, it is still radical and profound if we really put it into practice. You see, we live in an age of self-seeking and self-promotion. Social media is full of people promoting themselves. We live independent lives. We build our homes like fortresses. We have the latest security. We have high fencing outside. We are afraid of today's robbers who come in different guises. We have internet scammers. We have professional impersonators. We have identity thieves. And we have blatant muggers. We are guilty of losing the community spirit. I don't know whether you saw the news uh, just probably a couple of weeks ago, you may have seen this uh, story of Tony Foulds, a Sheffield pensioner. He was just eight years old when he saw the American uh, B-17 Flying Fortress, uh, coincidentally named my amigo, my friend, crash near Sheffield's uh, Encliffe Park. The plane was coming back from a bombing mission and it is thought that it attempted to make an emergency landing in the field in the park. The Miamigo approached low in an obviously bad way. It only had one engine going. And the crew would have seen the large expanse of grass as a possible landing place. But then, as the pilot looked out of his cockpit window, he saw the eight-year-old boy and his friends playing on the grass. And so he decided to circle. And then when the bomber came round again, the pilot waved his arms as a warning to the kids. 
children didn't know what he meant, so they all waved back at the plane. And on the third time, the plane came round again and it just missed the slates of the houses. It was that low. And Pilate had to make a split-second decision. Either to land and hope to miss the kids or, or, or else just to get over the trees with one engine. Of course, he tried to get over the trees, but the engine failed and it dropped straight to the ground and it killed all ten crew on board. And Tony Folds, now aged 82, said he felt guilty over the incident and he had been diligently maintaining and tending the memorial in the park for the whole of his adult life. It's a picture of selfless love for total strangers. And Jesus had been teaching that God's radical kingdom has now arrived. He said, if you want to save your, save your life, then you've got to give it first. Whoever of you wants to be the chief, let him be the servant. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. What does it look like to love someone? How far would you go for someone in need? Would you give two minutes of your time? Would you give your coat? Would you give your spare room? Is anyone excluded? Are there boundaries to our love? Do you think everyone deserves the same kind of compassion? Or are there some people that we don't have to care about? We can't ignore the many broken and damaged lives that can be found in our community. When we take Jesus' teaching seriously, we find it immensely challenging. Both John and James in their letters in the New Testament said you can't have faith unless you're putting it into practice. If anyone's got material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Let us not love with words or tongue but with actions and in truth. If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, James writes, love your neighbour as yourself, you're doing right. Faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Well, as we close, here are five lessons, very quickly, from uh, the Good Samaritan. First of all, he was passionate about people. You know, when we're daily confronted by global news, we can become immune to it all for fear of being overwhelmed. It's easier to leave it to the professionals, isn't it? Those trained in handling the crisis. Leave it to others. Verse 33 in the Amplified says, this Samaritan was moved with pity and with sympathy. I wonder if you and I are still moved with compassion for those struggling with life's problems. Are we affected by those hurting in society? Or have our hearts gone cold? Does our heart yearn for those people still searching for Jesus? Does our gospel mean anything? He was passionate about people. Secondly, he was selflessly willing to get involved. 
sadly, there seems to be a, a growing trend for people not getting involved. Uh, I read that at least 100 people in Melbourne watched a guy being beaten brutally in a hotel car park in the early hours of last Saturday morning. A 42-year-old man was on his way to the hotel when he was set upon by a group of men. The victim is said to have accidentally bumped into one of the guys and so they beat him up. Without thought for his own safety, the Samaritan treated and bandaged the wounds. He set the injured man on his own donkey. He took him to an inn and he cared for him throughout the night. He could have said to himself, well, I give regularly to charity. I support the Salvation Army. I've done my part. He had compassion and he acted upon it. Thirdly, he ignored racism and sectarianism. Even though he was a despised Samaritan, he rose above such shallowness to care for a fellow human being. Jesus taught us to love our enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, that you may be the sons of your Father in heaven. This is a really hard teaching, isn't it? Imagine an an American 19th century slave showing compassion for the plantation owner or a Jewish prisoner demonstrating concern for a Nazi during World War II. Fourthly, he had a good name. The innkeeper trusted the Samaritan. Maybe this wasn't the first time he'd helped out a fellow traveller. His name had credit and he earned a worthy character. I wonder if we've got a reputation for doing good. And fifthly, he was generous. The Samaritan didn't know how long the injured man was going to be laid up. The fact that it says he was half dead meant that it was probably going to be a fairly prolonged stay. And it's considered that two denarii would have brought about two months worth of lodging. He tells the innkeeper to take good care of him and reimburse him further when he calls next if more costs were involved. The well-being of this stranger was more important than the cost. And you and I are called to radically love. The story of radical love is very challenging when we take it to heart. Thankfully, we've got a supreme example of love in Jesus. Think of yourselves the way Christ Jesus thought of himself. He had equal status with God. But he didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to all the advantages of that status, no matter what. Not at all. He lived a selfless, obedient life and then died a selfless, obedient death. And the worst kind of death at that, a crucifixion. So the answer to how will we know you're any good is not by what we do but by accepting what Jesus has done for us. He sets us to perfect 
example. He was and is passionate about people. He was selflessly willing to get involved. His love extends beyond all borders, all races, all people types. His name is above every name. His name conveys authority and power. It's at the name of Jesus that every knee on earth will bow. He is generous beyond comprehension. He has lavished his love upon us. For our sakes he became poor, that through his poverty we might become rich. Let's pray. Father, it's very easy for us to read this parable and take it at face value and let it not impinge upon our lives or upon our hearts. This morning, Lord, we pray that you'll breathe your Holy Spirit into our hearts, that we may be challenged by your word and take action, that we may be the sort of people that you want us to be, that we may show the sort of radical love that Jesus showed for us when he went to the cross. What a saviour. We give him our thanks in his name. Amen.